Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to be able to bring to you the speaker presentations from the 2023 East End Conference. Organized by Adam Wood, Mark Ripper, Andrew Firth, and Carl Kopic, who acted as MC for the event, took place on the 7th and 8th of October at the Astronomer Pub in Middlesex Street in the heart of the East End of London. Sarah Wise, Streets Colored Black and Blue, Charles Booth's Notebooks, and the Revelation of East End Poverty. Okay, thank you everybody. Our third talk of the day. He's about Charles Booth. I have a billion questions, I must warn you. Okay, Sarah Wise, everyone. Thank you. Do any of you, in your researches uh, into um, the Ripper and the milieu of the Ripper, do you already make use of the Booth Archive at the London School of Economics? Yes. Yeah. During the lockdown, they did something fantastic. They uh, almost completely digitised all the background notebooks that went into the 17-volume printed volumes of the Life and Labour Survey. Um, and so you can keep, if you go onto their website, uh, you'll find it easily, lse.act.uk, Booth Library, it'll take you straight there. Not only can you download by right-clicking uh, the entire poverty map, you know, into lovely, you know, different parts of it onto your, onto your desktop, um, you can keyword search the actual notebooks that went into the making. So any job you want to look up, any street you're interested in. Um, so I just wanted to chuck that out there for any of you who weren't aware of it. It is fairly new that they've just uh, pretty much digitised the whole lot. There's a little that they still have got yet to do. So the 17 volumes were published between 1889, April 1889, and he finishes off in 1903. Um, I'll speak firstly about Boone's motivation for doing this extraordinary amount of work. Why did he do such a crazy thing? Um, and about the poverty map that is probably the most famous aspect of life and labour. And then I'll go on to talk about two particular East End districts, the Old Nickel, which I'm sure I don't need to tell you guys, on the corner of Shoreditch, on the border of Shoreditch and Bethnal Green, behind St Leonard's Church, and then Booth's views of Whitechapel. Um, so uh, to start off with, um, the enigma that was Charles Booth. Um, his brother-in-law described him as a unique personality, as baffling in his inner thoughts as in his personal appearance. A very, very unusual man for his times in many ways. Lots of people didn't know where he was coming from um, in his politics, uh, which just kind of makes the survey even richer in a way. As you may already know, he was a hugely successful businessman um, and he had a real passion for numbers and for accounting. That's how he relaxed. If he was getting a bit stressed out, he put his feet up on an armchair and do a load of number crunching. And when the results of the 1881 census came out, um, he was quite cross. He thought, what a great opportunity that was to ask lots of questions about you know, the people of Britain, the people of London, why didn't they take it? This is really dry, dull material. Um, and he wondered, was the census data being interpreted sensibly? Are there some new questions that we could add on 
into the next one in 1891. He joined the Royal Statistical Society and um, in 1885 he undertook one of their surveys which was how, um, how best to spend the huge sums that were being given in charity for the aid of the unemployed of London. Um, as I'm sure you all know, the mid-1880s was a time of huge unemployment in London. Um, and also there were, there were thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in what we today call in-work poverty. You've got a job, the wages are so wretched, you cannot keep yourself and your family. So with socialism on the rise and London charities squandering, in Booth's opinion, all these huge amounts of sums that the wealthy were given to relieve the unemployed, his life and labour survey um, grew out of his wish to delve ever further into this strange society that his initial um, survey had uh, discovered. So he saw himself very much as a, a scientific, uh, disinterested investigator. Um, he wanted to state more clearly the nature and the extent of the actual problem. After that, he said it's for other people to decide what the solutions might be. Um, common sense and facts and figures were desperately needed, and he intended to supply those where other people had instead been uh, producing lurid and harrowing anecdotal and impressionistic accounts of the sufferings of the very poor. The Ripper killings obviously leading to an explosion of just that kind of writing in the newspapers, but also uh, by fiction writers as well. So um, here's the actual words he used um, uh, to introduce what he intended to achieve. Um, to meet the evident demand for information, I offer the pages which follow. The facts as uh, given have been gathered and stated with no bias or distorting aim and with no foregone conclusions. Fantastic graphic on the right. That um, is how he colour-coded what he saw uh, London's socio-economic population. At the top, yellow or gold, as you prefer, uh, that's the wealthy. They play virtually no role in it. He's not interested in how the wealthy get on. They're not a problem, are they? Or are they? Um, Well-to-do, red middle class. Comfortable, yeah, you're probably lower middle class. Uh, and then poor and comfortable. You're doing okay for now. Um, and then poor. You're really, uh, you know, it's getting a bit precarious at that level. Very poor. You probably haven't got much work, and what work you've got isn't paying you very much. And then the black class, um, uh, semi-criminal. So he adds a whole moral element in as well. Um, so he continued. Uh, My object has been to attempt to show the numerical relation which poverty, misery and depravity, there's that moralism again, bear to regular earnings and comparative comfort, and to describe the general conditions under which class lives. With regard to the disadvantages under which the poor labour and the evils of poverty, there's a great sense of helplessness. To relieve this helplessness, a better stating of the problems is the first step. Um, and there we go, a, a more sort of uh, elaborate exposition of what he really means. So again, black, um, lower class, um, vicious, semi-criminal. Uh, dark blue, you're really, really poor, you're chronically deprived, but you're not a bit tasty, you know, you're not a criminal, you're, you're not dodgy. Um, 
light blue, and I'll come back to this uh, shillings thing again uh, shortly. Uh, you're on what Booth called his poverty line. Um, purple, what purple tends to mean is that you're in some form of retail or business. Now, of course, that can make you Mr. Selfridge, or you can be a grotty little corner shop that's completely failing. So it's a bit of a, a catch-all, um, uncertain colour is, is purple, but it's usually about retail or business of some kind. Pink, that's great. You, you're working class, but you've got you know, a regular pay coming in. You're doing all right. If, however, you have an accident or you become seriously ill or something goes wrong in your life and you haven't been able to pay in for some kind of benevolent society or some kind of savings, you are still stuffed. Being pink does not get you out of the potential problem. Uh, and you all know that with some of the people you read about in, in, in the Ripper background stories. Um, uh, red, well-to-do, middle class, probably got at least one servant. And then, as I say, yellow, we don't need to worry too much about the people in the yellow and gold streets. So just very quickly, going back to why he did this huge task, he used his own money. He spent £20,000 out of his own pocket um, to, to fund the work. He gets his team of 20 people together in 1886, uh, and the first volume comes out on East London. Uh, in April 1889. So a huge endeavour involving lots of people uh, and it's all self-funded. So as I say, you cross about the census. Why didn't you, why didn't you go deeper? Um, as I also touched upon, anxiety about the possibility of revolutionary socialism um, or, or even socialism in Parliament, which of course, as we know, did, did eventually come about. Um, concern that the Church of England um, was, was just not functioning in that charitable way, way that it ought to do. Um, anger about all these uh, novelists piling into the East End, especially after the Ripper killings, you know, churning out all this kind of, you know, um, over-the-top stuff. He thought, well, that's not quite right. Um, and then, really, I said he, his politics are complex. They are what he really, really wanted. He believed in capitalism. He was a big, successful capitalist. Um, but he wanted to make it fairer. He just thought, you know, it's a great system, we just need to spread it around a bit to people who deserve it, not the people who live in the black streets. Um, they don't deserve any of it, he thought. So, number of contradictions in his findings and his, in his pronouncements, um, and that is why um, he's, he's uh, claimed by everybody today and always has been right the way across the political spectrum. Everybody says, oh yeah, I can back up what I believe, because Charles Booth, you know, his findings back that up, you know, and, and, and so it does encompass a large range of political opinions. So here it is in its entirety. I've been kind of thinking and working on Booth since about 1996, and then probably about five years ago, I did the, an unusual thing for me, I have to say, I went to a private view in Nexbridge. It was at some nice little gallery, I can't remember what the opening was, and yeah, you've got your free booze, so I'm, I'm propped up on this you know, cabinet chatting to someone. There it was, this huge thing framed on the wall, and I've never seen it. I got so used digitally to seeing it, ooh, there's a slice of it, there's another chunk of it. To see the whole thing, it was actually on sale for £16,000. And it really kind of, uh, yeah, it, it, it just, you know, it just, it's... Uh, extraordinary thing when you actually see it because I just wasn't, you know, talk about digitisation, making you see things in a different way. Oh my God, there it is. 
So although the 17 volumes are full of contradiction, they're not all written by Booth, uh, but he certainly edited all, all, all the essays that, that, that were, were in it. Um, the map gives you this idea that London is easily understandable, this complex and contradictory city, there it is at a glance, which of course is you know, problematic in its own way. So where did he live? Well, during the survey he moved, but he never left the gold streets, of course he didn't. Uh, so there he is up, up in uh, South Kensington, that's where he starts off. Um, and then he moves to just north of Marble Arch in uh, Great Cumberland Place. Um, Booth didn't do, do any new cartography whatsoever. He's not out there with a theodolite doing any of that stuff. He simply went along to Stanford's map emporium and he bought the Ordnance Survey map uh, and he and his team coloured them in according to the data that he and his 20 assistants um, had. Uh, unusual, in another way, of the 20 assistants, five were women. Uh, the idea being that maybe if, you, you know, if, if you're going door knocking, you're asking intrusive questions, if, if a woman answers the door, she's more likely to start telling you what the family budget's like, how many kids she's got, that sort of thing. So very, very foresighted. He was quite a modern man in that way. Um, this you might want to photograph, because just because of time I won't be able to sort of um, read it all. But um, I mentioned um, money, um, what are things worth? And the great thing about the 19th century, unlike the 20th or our own age, you haven't got these great big inflationary pressures, meaning it's hard to compare things. You can compare things quite easily across the 19th century. Modern inflation, as we understand it, doesn't really get going until uh, the 20th century. So he brings up his poverty line, and he reckoned that a ma man, really, or, or a household, but really a man's wage, really ought to be somewhere between 18 and 21 shillings a week um, if there's around three children. He's quite dodgy about the size of the family. He certainly doesn't mean six. He certainly doesn't mean one. He says average. So let's think in terms of three. Um, and it does actually chime. There was a very, you may know about this as well, the uh, Royal Commission on the Housing of the Working Classes, multi-volume uh, report, loads of uh, uh, people have come forward to talk about the lives of the poor. Royal Commissions, any kind of governmental uh, report like that is well worth you mining if you're interested in the lives of the poor. And again, they've been digitised. It's fantastic. You need to join a library that's got um, database access to the House of Commons parliamentary papers, and it's all keyword searchable. Absolutely brilliant stuff in some of these royal commissions and select committees. They say, yeah, that, uh, that, that, yeah they said earlier that that's about right. Uh, a family of four needs between 20 and 30 shillings a week. If you're not bringing in that regularly, not bringing in that, you're in danger of the workhouse. Uh, or if you can't face that, you're in danger of the gutter. That's that's the that's the line of precarity. Uh, but look what the poor law guardians, you know, the welfare uh, people. They said, oh no no, um, family of five, you can get by on nine shillings and fourpence. So that's less than half the the, the accepted you know uh, uh, requirement. So there's some typical London prices, um, you've got some, obviously the biggest problem is rent, it's always the rent, what should we do for the rent, always the problem. Um, so one room um, in the old nickel, for example, uh, was two and six, um, 
um, two rooms you needed to have four and six and three 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 rooms uh, seven and six um, I hope you've managed to take a photograph of that or, or maybe it can be sent on on to any uh, attendees but yeah so to get and we, we know what people wrote uh, you know unfortunately we know it because of Connor's reports but we know what, what what sort of food the food of the poor uh, and then other things as well there so um, Booth's overall summary, I'll give you the headline, uh, was immensely comforting for his original readership. Calm down, don't worry, that lot that live in the black streets, there's only one and a quarter of them, a quarter percent of them, you know, there's hardly any of them, they're a tiny amount. And he concluded, the hordes of barbarians of whom we have heard, who issuing from their slums will one day overwhelm modern civilization, do not exist. There are barbarians, but they are a handful, a small and decreasing percentage. They are disgrace, but they are a disgrace, but they are not a danger. So that that's fantastic. So let's head off to uh, the land of disgrace. Um, you can't really tell from my large picture there, but when you do see the whole thing, your eye instantly goes to all the places we know about. You know where they are. Um, so here it is, one of the biggest, possibly the biggest splodge of black ink and dark blue ink is the Old Nickel, which as you know is just, was just behind um, St. Leonard's Shoreditch. Um, so when he started his survey, he, 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 he didn't believe all these numbers that big mouthy trades unionists were and left-leaning left people were shouting about, ooh, 25% of Londoners are living in chronic poverty and deprivation. He says, you can't prove that, you know, you're just saying that. By the end of his work, Booth had discovered that the true figure, the true percentage of Londoners living in chronic poverty or deprivation was what? Doesn't believe 25% that's rubbish, that is. What was it? 15. No, that's good. You've gone too far. 30.7. <laughs> yeah. So, and he's like, oh, okay. Well, it was worse than I thought. Um, in the old nickel, it was 80%. 80% of the 5,700 people living there are, according to his terms, um, his income and outgoings are in chronic poverty. Uh, and 40, 40 percent of people living in the old nickel were under the age of 15. And so one thing I think, if we could go back in time, go out into Petticoat Lane, 1888, one thing we'd really strike us is the, the youth of London. Loads and loads of kids and teenagers out and about on the streets. I think that would really strike us. I think we forget about just how elderly we're all getting in, in the, the, the so-called developed world. And in fact, in London, we're luckier than most parts of the country today. We are still, you know, it's comparatively a young city. Yeah, so 80% in poverty. Many of them children, obviously. Now, um, the old nickel was proverbially narrow and dark. Um, very hard to get a big unwieldy Victorian camera in there at all so we don't have a lot of pictures and those that we do have aren't terrific quality um, so top left that's an unnamed uh, street in the old nickel it's actually one of the wider ones um, it's a shame I can't show you a, a sort of great greater size because uh, that child has done what I love in Victorian photos they can stand still for so long and then suddenly they move and so they can get that lovely ghost image um, um, but it's obviously been a, we a weaver's 
um, house. It's got those uh, uh, large windows to try and catch as much light as possible. Um, and it does that wonderful thing that Nickel Streets do when you look at the map. Uh, it carries on. That's lovely. There's two bollards. And it doesn't just carry on after that. It jinks over here. Just kind of mad little maze. Why would a street do that? But it does. Um, this one here, Sherwood Place, <coughs> over in the east of the Nickel. You can see the overturned barrows of the costermongers. You know, when they're not in use, you turn them over. That there, that little thing that's like a steam engine, a miniaturized steam engine, that's a baked potato machine. A um, bit, bit like our, you know, we still have chestnuts that we live in the streets. A bit like that. Pick up your, uh, pick up your little machine, walk down to Liverpool Street, for example, and sell jacket potatoes fresh out of the oven. Um, Sherwood Place was one of the most insanitary places in the Nickel. Um, we do read coroner's stories of children dying because the ceilings come down on them. Horrible things going on in Sherwood Place because the appalling quality of the property. Um, and a lot of it was owned by the sanitary and housing officer of Bethnal Green Parish Vestry. So the very people who are supposed to you know, make homes safe and nice, they're actually slum landlords. Big problem in late 19th century. Um, um, Holy Trinity, Old Nickel Street, that took a direct hit in the Blitz, May 1941. For those of you who know the area, it's where that children's playground is now. Um, that's a court, by the same photographer, that's a court in the Nickel. And all the women have done that fantastic thing I love whenever you get that sort of thing. Um, so you come lumbering into their tiny court with your great big machine to take a photograph of them. No one asked you. So they come out and they're like... <laughs> and they, they return the gaze, you know, the gaze. And then, yeah. uh, but interestingly, no one ever got attacked. Always do good as you come in door knocking. How are you, madam? How do you live? Can I take a photo? No one ever gets attacked. No one gets a, even gets any anything thrown at them or anything. Uh, so we need to hold that thought. And then top right, Virginia Road, which is still there, Virginia Road, just running over the top of the nickel. The nickel is over that roof line there on the right. So one of Booth's investigators um, who fed him lots of information um, was the local curate, Arthur, uh, sorry, Rupert St. Ledger. Um, he had knocked on every nickel door at least four times across a two-year period, and he compiled lists of the inhabitants, which you can read. You can find those notebooks digitally in the old booth, uh, uh, sorry, in the, in the booth um, uh, archive. Um, and he described the living conditions in the old nickel as squalid and miserable in the extreme, with an average of five people to a room. Uh, and he thought the health of women and children was particularly badly affected by these conditions. Um, the atmosphere generally was impure, but in the rooms it was positively sickening, he stated. Sometimes when you look through his notebook, he's only noting down uh, house numbers and surnames. Sometimes he'll put down a religious denomination. Other times he'll find someone on the doorstep, or maybe they'll invite him in, and they're willing to talk more at length. And so we get... Uh, for example, I just pulled out um, three of them. Number 40, Half Nickel Street. Uh, Mrs. May, um, she's kind of come down in the world a bit. Um, she married against her father's wishes, she's discarded, her husband dies, and there she is, uh, stuck in this terrible place. Um, he said she was respectful, civil, evidently of superior origin, and she had the care of two children. Um, um, one of which I think must have had learned learning difficulties. Um, and she's paying four shillings and sixpence for a room 
suppose, a supposedly furnished room which she described with graphic contempt. Uh, number 12, New Nickel Street, Bates. Child came to the door and said, not today. Grandmother lying down. On second visit, very poor indeed, upholsterer, wife and five children, two with measles, wife weakly. It's a bit more cheerful at number, um, at, uh, number 12. Um, Hall works in a brandy bolts and has a grown-up son at the docks. We're all having tea very comfortably by a large fire, and I join them, well-disposed and intelligent. So among the people surveyed and catalogued, because these, these notebooks do look a bit like a catalogue of people, there's whole families of churchgoers, both Protestant and Roman Catholic, several Jewish families, women fending for themselves after separating from a violent or drunken husband, women who are still burdened with a violent or drunken husband, there are teetotalers, striking dock workers and other members of organised labour. Uh, um, and el elderly Huguenot descended textile weavers, you can tell from the surnames, a lot of the original Huguenots are still there doing very, very high quality uh, silk and satin work uh, in very unlikely conditions. Um, hundreds of highly skilled artisans working in a, a wide variety of very specialist manufacturing. You know, the stuff a lot of these people turning out was absolute top quality. The problem they've got is that all the great big West End and emporiums and department stores are driving the prices downwards. So you've got these expert workers just unable to get off their knees despite their skills and their hard work. Um, St Ledger also discovered huge numbers of people laid low with chronic ill health, other people who were long-term unemployed or underemployed, as well as people engaged in really tedious, low-paid, exhausting um, exploited labour, your classic sweated workers. Uh, so Booth reads all this um, information that Rupert St. Ledger sent him um, and he heads off there uh, himself. Um, so he often does this, he'll read what his, his, his people say and then he, he goes along and, and has a look for himself. Um, I passed several times and still the same women and I think the same children stood waiting in the freezing air. The children looked well enough, more common than lectured. Uh, the women looked exceedingly cold, and no wonder, for they seemed to have run over from their houses without throwing on either bonnet or shawl, um, in their working aprons, bare-armed as well as bare-headed, um, gossiping until their turn might come. At the corner, as I passed along, two boys met. At dinner, said one, yes. What did you have? Soup. And was it good, I put in. And the answer came promptly, no. I love that, just this idea, phased by you, mate. <laughs> um, so yeah, and then uh, as he carries on. In one street is the body of a dead dog and nearby two dead cats, which lie as though they had slain one another. All three have been crushed flat by the traffic which has gone over them, and they, like everything else, are frozen and harmless. This Woolsboon wrote a district of almost solid poverty, in which the houses were as broken down and deplorable as their own, as their unfortunate inhabitants. So the one problem with the Booth archive, and they didn't know about this until I very unhelpfully pointed it out to them, the map that I mentioned that you can click on and download, beautiful high quality, is the redrawn map. Booth and the team go back in 1902, 1903, um, and they redraw it, and it's, everything's a lot jollier there's a lot more uh, red and pink and purple. And you do see the black, 
disappearing and the dark blue and a lot of the pale blue. Things are looking up. There's various reasons for that, which we can talk about later if you like. Um, and I said, well, you do know you haven't got the original 1889 one up on there. And they didn't know that. So this is 1889. But look what happens to that area uh, on the redrawn map 14, 13, 14 years later. Um, he goes back and the London's first planned council estate has been built on the site of the old nickel. It's been bulldozed, torn down, and they've put affordable workers' housing up. It's still there today, for those of you who know it, the Boundary Street estate, uh, grade two star listed. Um, and so um, it turns lovely shell pink, which as we remember, is working class comfort, good wages. Uh, and the, but the surrounding streets take a lot, lot of the evicted population of the nickel. So all around Slater Street, Bacon Street, Topper Brick Lane, all that area get blacker, dark bluer, um, as only 11 old nickel residents got a place, got a flat on the estate, mostly because they couldn't afford it, despite the council saying, oh, this is affordable housing, no, it wasn't. Um, and so if you can't afford it, you can't live there. Uh, and I think also an element of people not wanting to uh, li li live in these kind of flats rather than converted housing. A huge number of, of the residents went up to Hoxton for real reasons we still can't quite work out. A big lot of nickel people went up to Hoxton and you see the map of Hoxton getting, getting blacker as a result. So if we just take... Um, a quick look at uh, Booth's rundown of um, the um, corridor divisions of uh, East London, as they were in 1887. I'm sure I don't need to tell you, but after the New Poor, New Poor Law Act um, in, in 1834, rather than each parish giving out, it, it, they bundled together in what's called unions. Nothing to do with trades unions, but the Poor Law Union. So this is, this is, these are the figures for the eight Poor Law Unions. Of, um, of East London, making up a grand total of 909,000 East London residents. Um, and as you possibly also might know, one of the reasons for Whitechapel's particular problems was that the poor law guardians elected in Whitechapel were just about the tightest in London. If you are completely destitute and you come forward for help, they'll say, well, there's a lovely big workhouse you're welcome to go into. In fact, there were three workhouse buildings, but you're not getting any outdoor relief. You're not getting any, any cash to be able to stay in your own home with your family. They were really, really tight. And I think this helps to play into the particular problems that the Ripper victims had. Um, it was a really mean-minded little, uh, in comparison to the other. I mean, the others weren't open-handed but Whitechapel was pretty bad. Um, and as you know, better than most, one of the other dense concentrations of black and dark blue on the map is, is Whitechapel. Everywhere that you, that you know so well, um, Dorset Street, Jet Black, Fashion Street, Thrall Street, all of those, the Flower and Dean Rookery, all Jet Black. No one in this room is going to be surprised by that. Um, but. The chapters on Whitechapel are interesting because they also show that um, most of its problems, Whitechapel's problems, were actually a lot more mundane than blood, the blood-soaked atrocities that we're so familiar with. So here is Booth's own eyewitness view of Petticoat Lane. 
um, Middlesex Street, just right outside our door here, published in volume one of Life and Labour, uh, pages 66 to 67, if any of you want to follow it up. Um, and he puts it uh, like this. Each district has its character, its peculiar flavour. One seems to be conscious of it in the streets. It may be in the faces of the people, or in what they carry, or it may lie in the sounds one hears, or in the character of the buildings. The excitement of life is especially characteristic of Whitechapel. And looked at it in this way, what a drama it is. Whitechapel is the El Dorado of the East, a gathering together of poor fortune seekers. Its streets are full of buying and selling, the poor living on the poor. Here, just outside the old city walls, have always lived the Jews, and here now they are in their thousands, both old established and newcomers. The neighbourhood of Petticoat Lane on Sunday is one of the wonders of London, a medley of strange sights, strange sounds, strange smells. Streets crowded so as to be thoroughfares no longer, and lined with a double or treble, treble row of hand barrows. The salesmen with stentorian voices cry their wares, vying with each other in introducing to the surrounding crowd their cheap garments, smart braces, sham jewellery, patent medicines. On the lower stalls are to be found a heterogeneous collection of such things as cotton sheeting, American cloth, which I think is like linoleum, um, old clothes, worn out boots, damaged lamps, chipped china shepherdesses, rusty locks, and rubbish indescribable. Other stalls supply daily wants. Fish is sold in large quantities, vegetables and fruit, queer cakes and outlandish bread. In nearly all the cases, the Jew is the seller and the Gentile is the buyer. Petticoat Lane is the exchange of the Jew, but the lounge of the Christian. So for Booth and his team, Whitechapel was noteworthy for two things. Uh, they're unrelated, they're completely unrelated, but they sit alongside each other. So firstly, it was an area of huge rough sleeping, for that reason I just mentioned earlier, and of common lodging houses. You all know that phrase. Technically, a common lodging house was a house in which beds were let out either nightly or weekly um, in rooms in which three or more persons not of the same family might sleep at the same time. Um, was supposed to be policed by the Metropolitan Police, um, but as often as not, probably, probably not really. And then secondly, unrelated to that, Whitechapel was, as that passage just suggests, the place where the majority of the tens of thousands of Jewish immigrants had settled, uh, along with Stepney, just, just, just nearby. So if we look at homelessness and common lodging houses first, um, there were these eight poor law unions, and, and Whitechapel was the tightest, there was a big crackdown on welfare, poor law, relief in 1869, and then again in the mid-1880s. Um, so austerity, if you like. Um, no, no help whatsoever was to be given outside the workhouse. Given how hated and feared the workhouse was, many, most thought, no, I'll, I'll, I'll take a chance out on the streets instead. Um, so this is how Charles Booth um, put that situation. Sleeping out of doors is one of the features of Whitechapel. It is a centre for common lodging houses and shelters. Destitutes from all sides are drawn here. Many would rather sleep out of doors than indoors in the warm weather. If they are without visible means of subsistence, the police can charge them. If they have a few pence, as they generally have, 
They can only be moved on from door to door and finally will move no further and left sleeping on the doorstep. They also sleep out during the day on such seats as are provided. These people are covered in vermin and cannot be touched with impunity. Um, I hope you can read the bottom caption there. That's um, the gardens outside the Hawksmoor Church, uh, Christchurch, Littlefields. And as you probably know, it was known as Itchy Park for that very reason. So, as I've said, if you don't want to go into the workhouse, sleeping rough was just the kind of only option if you didn't have a few pennies for a night in a common lodging house. Um, I should also point out that the Salvation Army opened many large homeless shelters right the way across London and across Britain, which many homeless people did make use of, uh, but obviously you've then got that risk that you're going to get sermonised as well. And I like that kind of proud, independent spirit. I'm not going into the workhouse because they're a bunch of bullies. I'm not doing it. I'm an independent person. And I'm not going to the Salvation Army because they're not going to tell me all about God. So kind of quite admirable, I think, you know, in a way. Not many images of common lodging houses for, for obvious reasons. Lighting, again, it's very hard uh, to, to capture a darkened room like that. The one at the bottom isn't that darkened. That's... Um, uh, much brighter and it's a bit later as well we've got Gustave Doré's uh, wonderful oil painting there capturing the, the light and heat from the common fire you know the common kitchen is where everybody gathered with the great big fire and that's so that's a bit earlier in our time that's 1870 so the chapter on common lodging houses was given to a philanthropist called Robert Valpy um, it's very very interesting reading indeed I mean not very nice but uh, he's not very nice about them and he writes, in studying the picture of London poverty set forth in the varied colours on the map, the eye readily notices those black spots which betoken a miserable combination of poverty, vice and crime. If a more minute acquaintance is made with these dark places, it will be found that in not a few of them, houses exist for accommodating the poorer classes of Her Majesty's subjects and known as registered common lodging houses. These houses are under the control of the local authority, which is the commissioner of the police, and are subject to periodical inspection by officers for this purpose. Um, so he points out that they, there are very strict guidelines about cleanliness, number of lodgers, very strict seg segregation of the sexes, no harbouring of criminals or incorrigible beggars. Would that the regulations were always rigidly enforced. So that might help us to explain some of the um, you know dodgy uh, things that we know about about the uh, the victims' interactions with the common, common lodging house deputies, um, and he says that although it is obviously predominantly hope, poor and homeless who use these, there were also skilled working men or artisans who had to be highly mobile for their work, who also made use of them. You know, I think classically stonemasons, for example, anywhere that you had to be on a job for a while. You'll go into a common lodging house. And that quite, you know, a lot of these were really quite decent and nice. Um, other young male clerks or shop assistants, you know, they're young men, they want to spend money having lots of fun or getting some nice, you know, clothing. They don't want to spend it on rent. So they'll go into a, a, a sort of a, a rather nice common lodging house that they used to be called things like chambers. That was always the clue. Um, so it's not always, um, you know, a, a sad story. Um, so in um, 1889, there were 995 common lodging houses in the whole of London, plus five in the city of London. That makes a really neat 
total of exactly 1,000, uh, and they were housing 31,651 people in 1889. So as you know, um, the focus was, was the kitchen, the fire burns day and night, it's for cooking and it's for general warmth, furniture is rough and basic and sturdy, um, and we do have a non, couple of non-booth accounts about how difficult it was to see into them from the streets. And we've got this account of uh, one of the things that kids in white shop used to do is try and lie down on the pavement like this so you could see under the gap in the door and see what these mysterious closed off places were like. Because, you know, the, the windows are always sort of covered in as well. So quite mysterious. Typical foodstuffs that they're, they're consuming, they're, they're buying outside, taking in and cooking on, on the fire. Savaloys, herring, bacon, rashers, uh, potatoes, all cooked on that open range. Um, Robert Valpy hung around quite a few of these places and he saw card and dice games being played, dirty stories and jokes being told, but being Robert Valpy doesn't tell us what they are, you have to make up your own. Um, songs, a lot of singing going on, occasionally the men would start dancing. Um, he also said, and other people back this up, quite a lot of political and theological discussion going on and quite separate to Booth and Valpy. We do have eyewitness accounts from religious missionaries who gain entrance to a kitchen. I bet everybody went, oh my God. Um, they go in and they're you know, preaching to them about this. And some, a man will stand up and say, well actually, I think you'll find in James chapter 2 that it actually says. And this big discussion will break out and these sort of philanthropists are like, oh. And, and we do hear this, you know, people talking at a really high level about politics, about religion, and that really shocked everybody, you know, all these broken down old destitutes. No, a lot of them were men and women who come down in the world, to use that phrase, and were self-educated, self-educating, and, and very able to debate. And in fact, some people say one of the characteristics of the cockney is this love of argument, debate, dispute, let's... Let's talk this subject through. Um, you probably all know this one, um, Crossingham's Lodging House. Um, uh, Valky goes there. I, I mean, do, do either of you know those uh, illustrations there? Any of you know? I, I had a real squeak because I'd never seen those, and I found them in the. <coughs> I can't remember what it says. I think it's a Sunday pictorial. Another one of those newspapers that's really worth, worth going through if you if you've got access. To, to a library. Lovely drawings inside Crossingham's, uh, which as you know, dominated uh, Dorset Street. So again, Valpy, um, he's not having it. While there are among the inhabitants of these houses many who never do an honest day's work uh, of any kind, but live by gambling, thieving or fraud, spending their lives alternately in the common lodging house and the jail, there's also a considerable number who excite our utmost pity, poor derelicts of humanity, who from sheer inability, whether mental or bodily, cannot work, or if they attempt to work, are worse than useless. These would seem to spend their lives interchangeably um, <coughs> between the common lodging house, the night shelter, the casual ward, um, and the workhouse. Um, so just, again, I was really excited when I found these two interiors of Spitalfields common lodging houses. Um, one of them is uh, for, for women only, down there, bottom right. Again, there's the, there's the fire, and there's that really cosy fire as well. So I was really pleased to find those. Um, the common lodging house, if you look at workhouse, if you look at poor law records, 
and you look at the records of people going into the workhouse, you often see the common lodging house as the, the address that they're coming in from. And I think they acted as unofficial feeders into the workhouse. I think it goes like this. For whatever reason, you can no longer afford your two shillings and sixpence in the nickel or whatever slum that you've just managed to cling on to. Uh, so then you'll go, you go into the nightly rented common lodging house. And for whatever reason, again, you can't afford that now. So you're spiralling down and down and down. And you either become a vagrant or you go into the workhouse. And we see this over and over again. Last address blah, blah, common lodging house. So I think that's how it kind of uh, worked. So if we turn now, uh, just to finish, to the second thing that Whitechapel was famous for in the 1880s, um, its large uh, Jewish population. Um, two members of the Booth team in 1899 did this map. Um, very similar kind of idea, colour coding, densities of um, Ju uh, Jewish uh, settlement in London. Um, between 1870 and uh, 1914, an estimated, not that easy as you might think to, to get numbers, but historians generally settle on around 120,000 Jews um, coming to London, fleeing murderous persecution in Russian-controlled Eastern Europe, um, often initially welcomed sympathetically by Londoners, but as you might guess, that sheer struggle for homes, that struggle for jobs, uh, meant that you know anti-alien sentiment did flare up. We can't we can't pretend uh, that it didn't. But one of the most famous and celebrated chapters in Life and Labour, one that made a lot of you know the intelligentsia go, oh, um, was by one of his most important his most important colleagues, actually his cousin uh, Beatrice Potter, goes on to be Beatrice Webb, uh, a very important policymaker in the 20th century, and she writes this very uncharacteristically generous appraisal of what she sees about Jewish life um, in, in, in the East End. It's easy to overlook the unseen influence for good of self-creating, self-supporting and self-governing communities um, and enough to generate public opinion and the practical supervision of private morals and large enough to stimulate charity, um, worship and um, studied by uh, communion and example. She compares them favorably with, you know, you've got me running wild. They've come here and they, 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 they support each other and they educate and they look after each other and they try to make sure that they're not a nuisance to anyone and that nobody can throw that, um, throw that horrible thing at them, oh, you know, you drain on our resources. Hence, we get, it's a little bit after our time, but you probably know just down the, literally around the corner in Broome Street, uh, the Jewish soup kitchen. It's 1902, but it's also got the he Hebrew date on it, so that's just around the corner. Um, lots and lots of tiny little synagogues. The Sandys Row one has now had a nice uh, redevelopment. It's got a museum attached to it, and we can go, you can visit there. Um, and there's the Jews' free school. Um, absolutely brilliant place. And it got bulldozed about 15 years ago. That really horrible, great, big, sleek, grey, silver that is looking over us, that office, a tower block is looking over us. It's just horrible. No, nobody raised a, a voice to save it. Um, and so Booth's not having any of this idea that immigrants are a drain on our community. We can only exclude Jews on an England for the English basis. Not as anti-pauper legislation. On the whole, they work hard, do well, keep themselves, and usually get on in the world. So he's kind of, you know, not having it, which is... Um, um, so with regard to the parish church of Whitechapel, 
again, I'm sure you know this, um, St. Mary Magdalene, um, brilliant name. Um, he said uh, that the rise in the Jewish population of Whitechapel um, hadn't had quite the impact on church attendance that might be expected. So he says the following, St. Mary's, the parish church of Whitechapel, is still an active centre of evangelisation, and in spite of the moving away of the church-going class, and that, that's your pink, purple and red, uh, maintains fair congregations. Many of the workers especially come from further east, being those who formerly lived here, and still take an interest in the parish. So people get, get on and get up and get out, but they do still come back in on Sundays to worship. Um, the poor are found very difficult to reach, having, is it asserted, been spoilt in the past, so that a time came when no visitor would be received who did not bring something. The rector spoke of the painstaking <coughs> efforts of the poor, who in order to benefit as much as possible, trot from meeting to meeting. Um, there are more Jews than Christians in the parish, but the total population is great, and the church can claim a larger circle than the parish. As I'm sure you know, you know, um, Whitechapel's got nothing to do with the great big Hawksmoor church at the end of Brushfield Street. Um, there was a White Chapel. That's the original St Mary Magdalene's. Um, and I, I think I'm right in saying that that Victorian one uh, was the third incarnation of the church, took a direct hit, um, and it's now Al-Tabali Park, where I think you're going to be starting your walk, aren't you? Yeah, they've done it up really nicely with the sarcophagi left in place. So, just to finish off, uh, the Booth Notebooks, very amusing, um, in Dorset Street. Booth gets taken on a walk with Inspector Mulvaney, um, Oh, sorry, Superintendent Mulvaney of H Division, takes him down Dorset Street on the 7th of January, 1888, so it hasn't even happened. And even by then, Mulvaney's like, oh, no. Um, as you know, one of its nicknames was Dosset Street because of Crossingham's, etc. Um, so the quotation is, um, it, it, it's handwritten. Uh, and the good thing about these archives that you can digitally search is most of the handwriting is pretty good. Um, so Mulvaney says, he shows him um, a fat woman sitting in one of the windows at the first floor and Mulvaney tells Booth that she's been there for years because she's too fat to get out the door. Um, so it's full of that kind of stuff. That's not about socioeconomics, but it's, it's very interesting. Um, and Mulvaney says there's been three stabbings and one murder there in the past uh, three months. So hold that thought because that, that's J January 1888. Um, I haven't been professional enough to go and find out what they were, of course, but you might want to. So, yeah, you know, ha-ha, fat women. And that kind of judgmentalism carries on a little bit um, uh, in, in Booth, in, in his, his essay. Um, um, a woman came along with a basket in her arm full of cat's meat, which she distributed to the cats as she passed. Do you see that woman, said our companion, that's Mulvaney. She was a prostitute and still lives in a brothel, but she goes daily round the district feeding the cats. In appearance, she was a frowsy, debauched, drunken-looking creature. Charming. Um, so, yeah, that is Dorset Street. Another squeak from me. I'd never seen this before. Maybe you have, but I hadn't seen it. Uh, it was in a, in a very short-lived uh, periodical called The New Budget. Uh, and I absolutely uh, love that one. And it's all probably very well uh, more familiar to you than it is to mine. So we'll come to an end now. And if any of you have got any questions, I'll be delighted to try and answer. Thank you. Thank you.
Um, the boot map's fascinating to me because I, I've been doing some reading on the Rillington and Place yeah. murders. Yeah. Um, and it's extraordinary because Rillington Place is nice in 1889 and it's, yeah. it's, it's well to do and it's not a problem and of course you go through to the to the yeah. murders in the 50s and yeah. it's and if Booth had been doing his map then it would have been dark blue yeah, or, yeah. absolutely yeah. comfortably like rats on the street yeah. Yeah. it's enough of that um, yeah. questions please oh come on it's the Booth map <laughs> how could he not have questions about the Booth what's interesting as well is I love the fact that he stood up and said this is not a thing and then he went all that money to do it, that and he was so wrong. Yeah, that's right. Which I, I think that. that's just an extraordinary yeah. thing. That a um, cell phone. Yeah, absolutely it's, brilliant. It's um, because normally you think people would just depress that sort of. Well, well forget about that. And yeah. I, I never spent all that money and sort of all that time doing yeah. that. Come yeah. on, any questions? Yes. Is there a, is there going to be a um, a book on this? I've got your old nickel book. Um, oh yeah, forgot my self marketing. Um, oh, there we are. Mm, can I say possibly, madam? Okay. Um, I've, got, I've got my next book is coming out in April, and I've, I've forsaken the nineteenth um, century completely, and I don't like it. I don't like being out of the nineteenth century. I don't understand the twentieth century. <laughs> they don't do things the way we understand it. In You're in the right room. Yeah, yeah. So, quite possibly is is all I'll say. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, um, it's about a particularly nasty act of Parliament called the Mental Deficiency Act that got through Parliament in 1913, so just on the eve of World War One, and it's for the first time really in English legislation you could be sent to a uh, mental deficiency colony for life. I thought it was really interesting in Jonathan's um, presentation. He's such a problem, that man. But he's in and out. You would think, wouldn't you, that you know the authorities would have thought, well, that's he's such a problem. We're going to keep him certainly in an asylum forever. But he's not. He's out causing serious problems. Yeah, which is I find really odd. This act, the Mental Deficiency Act, for the first time ever, it said that if you're persistently acting up and misbehaving um, in that way, you are morally defective. And, and that's a new, it's a brand new term bundled up into um, mentally defective. So we might think of learning di uh, disability as we understand the range of it, but if you're a persistent like little villain or, or <coughs> criminal, or the biggest category was girls who had uh, a baby out of wedlock, you're immoral, you're a moral defective. They were, and, and so we know all those things about, oh, you know, she, they found her when she was in her 80s in Leavesden or any of the big asylums. She wasn't put there by the Victorians as somebody who was, a, who was mad or a lunatic. She's put there under this 20th century legislation. She's a moral defective. Many of them did develop mental illnesses when you, you have your freedom taken away for life, you have your baby taken off you. So it's about that. I've tried to find the stories of the people to whom that happened. It wasn't just women. Lots of, they found, when they're emptying the asylums in the 1960s, 70s and 80s, they find the, these elderly people um, who've just been, spent their entire life in custody when there was nothing mentally wrong with them. Nothing. So that's another jolly, terrorised book. It's coming out in April. Thank you very much. Please show your appreciation for Sarah Wise.
And that was Sarah Wise on Charles Booth at the 2023 East End Conference. I would like to thank the organizers of this event for making the release of the talks available to Rippercast again this year. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find hundreds of roundtable discussions, conference presentations, White Chapel Society meetings, and assorted odds and ends, all at the website www.casebook.org podcast and in fine podcast apps everywhere. I would like to thank you all for listening and see you next time.